Well, kia ora and welcome to the Dawn Chorus. It's Tuesday the 14th of September. I'm Bernard Hickey for the Kaka. Today I want to talk about the government's latest moves to extend the lockdown in Auckland, the Level 4 lockdown, by a week. And for the rest of us, the Level Delta 2, 2.5 if you like, for at least another week. The Prime Minister announced yesterday after the Cabinet meeting that the plan was to move Auckland down from Level 4 to Level 3 from the end of next Tuesday night. However, this is a provisional decision and depends, on, of course, on continued improvements in the number of cases and, in, of course, in the number of mystery cases. However, the pressure is really growing now on the government's strategy of elimination, complete elimination, and very hard borders until we get to a high enough vaccination rate. The trouble is, we don't actually know what that vaccination rate is, and when you look at the modelling that's being done from New Zealand in a Lancet study from about a month ago that included the latest Delta data, it looks very unlikely that we could open up even if we get to vaccination above 90%. Because that modelling shows that 10 incursions of COVID through the border each day, which is what you'd get in a normal period, given that opening up assumes some sort of home isolation. And that Lancet study shows that there would be, in theory, over 500 deaths per year and nearly 6,000 hospitalizations per year, even if we got to full 90% vaccination rates for the entire population. So that includes children. This is part of the problem here, is that the government is not setting a threshold for vaccination above which we can start to open up. I asked the Prime Minister and Ashley Bloomfield about this at the Prime Minister's press conference last night, essentially trying to work out how high do we need to go that is safe to open up, given the restraints on our uh, hospital system. The Prime Minister rejected the idea that we couldn't open up even if we were above 90%, but it's worth having a listen to the answer. Again, she is very reluctant to include any sort of threshold. Here's the exchange from the press conference last night. Sorry, I'm ready to come to you and then I'll come to So, Prime Minister, uh, what is the level of vaccination where the hospital system can cope with any outbreaks and where you don't have to go to a level four lockdown whenever there's a breach. I, now, is there any level high enough? Because the study in the Lancet uh, a month or two ago showed that even at 90%, there would still be nearly 6,000 hospitalizations a year and 500 deaths per year. So is there any level of yeah. vaccination levels that's actually safe? Yeah, and there are other illnesses that in the wintertime, of course, surge as well. And so, of course, it's not to say that we don't have hospitals, our hospitals having to surge for those um, illnesses and so on. The first thing I'm going to say is, at the moment, our strategy is elimination. We've not changed up that plan. So we are going to continue to work alongside our experts around what the post-vaccination environment looks like. I only say that because there was a lot of built-in assumption to the question that you asked me. For things like modelling around hospitalisation rates and so on, really a question for Dr Bloomfield, if I can. Key comment I would make here is, if you look at one of the things we do have, uh, the advantage we do have with having taken the approach we've got is we can learn from other countries and jurisdictions. 
And you can see, you're right, even with high rates of vaccination, you still need other restrictions to be able to manage the load on the healthcare system. And that's regardless of whether you're a, a Singapore, a UK, or a number of other countries through East Asia that are also in uh, a similar position. So we are watching very closely what is happening with, with other countries where they have got the virus in the community with high vaccination rates and the impact that's having on their healthcare system. The UK is a good example. Last Friday, The Guardian was reporting, eight, reporting 8,000 people in hospital which would equate to 600 in New Zealand on any one day. That's a lot for our hospital system to cope with. So you can see they're now considering what other restrictions do they need to put in place to help reduce the number of cases in the community. The best thing we can do is give ourselves as much time as possible just to see what is happening in other countries and therefore, as we plan for the future, what are the things we need to take into account. Doesn't that imply that um, there is no level of vaccination high enough to actually um, move beyond elimination and level four restrictions? Uh, no, no, I would reject that. Yeah, yeah there is, uh, it's quite clear that, and you can look at a number of European jurisdictions, and the PM talked about Denmark and Iceland's another one, where they've got, of their total population in Iceland, for example, over 80% have had at least one vaccination. And, and what you can see is the extent, the impact that has on their healthcare system is much less than in countries with lower rates of vaccination. Yeah. So the, the aim for us, as it has always been, and people have tried to pin a percentage on us, is as high as possible. The higher we get, the better it is for everybody from a whole range, for a whole range of reasons, including the impact on the healthcare system. Rick Lecture says there's some really interesting analysis of hospitalisations and deaths in Canada that looks at over 600,000 cases there and looks at the proportion unvaccinated and vaccinated who are, who are presenting in hospital and, and very, very clear the impact of vaccination rates there. So even in those countries where you continue to see hospitalisations, uh, often large percentages of unvaccinated people or the complication of immunocompromised people as well in some countries too. Yeah. So there you have it, um, the Prime Minister and Ashley Bloomfield suggesting that over 80%, which is the levels um, achieved in Denmark and Iceland, our, we could look at whether our health system could cope with that. However, that Lancet study says that uh, we'd need to be over 90% and even then, it would be more like 6,000 hospitalizations a year and over 500 deaths per year. Now, either that modelling is wrong or the government has some other plans for how to restrict the spread of COVID over and above what that modelling suggests. We don't know. It's interesting when you look at what's happening in Iceland in particular, which was one of the first to get over 90% vaccination rates for particularly older adults, they are having significant numbers of hospitalizations and their health system, it's a very small country of course, their health system is um, straining under the load of those extra cases. And obviously in Israel, uh, where they have also got towards that 80% mark, albeit um, they only got there after some fresh outbreaks, they are having to look at third and fourth booster shots. And that is um, causing some grief. The thing I noticed out of that answer was the comment from Ashley Bloomfield about buying ourselves time. And my um, overall view is that the government is doing its best to ensure elimination and hopes that we can move to some sort of level one restrictions after that. 
But the sheer infectiousness of Delta and the danger of outbreaks breaks means it's inevitable that we would have more uh, lockdowns, potentially nationwide lockdowns, if we had another border breach. The Prime Minister said again yesterday that it's not what she wanted to do, but she's not ruling out further level four lockdowns. Meanwhile, the pressure is really growing for a re-examination of this very hard elimination strategy. David Seymour said last night on Checkpoint that we couldn't cope with continued lockdowns like this in Auckland, which, by the way, is now the longest lockdown it's ever had, and is saying that Auckland needs to be at some sort of permanent level 2.5, a bit like the Delta restrictions that we have in the rest of the country. That is problematic too, because it's clear, particularly from Wellington, that the restrictions on the hospitality sector of level 2.5 are very uh, tough and there are reports of various chains and cafes going out of business with level 2.5 and not seeing a future. And there's a link in today's Dawn Chorus to a very interesting piece out of the spin-off looking at what the hospitality sector in Auckland are campaigning for. They are obviously looking for more support from the government in the form of resurgence payments and more wage subsidies. But it's interesting, yesterday the Prime Minister also said that beyond Auckland, uh, to continue getting the wage subsidy once Auckland drops down from level four will be more difficult. You have to prove that the Auckland lockdown is what's causing your 30% fall in revenue. And the pressure is really mounting uh, on the economy. This time around, the government has been a lot more cautious in thumping out money from MSD. We're looking at upwards of $3 billion now after a month in lockdown, which wasn't as much as the last year's lockdowns. IRD is asking more questions, and uh, certainly there are quite a, few case, quite a few applications that are being rejected. Now, I also asked the Prime Minister and Ashley Bloomfield about the summer festivals, and there's been reports in the last couple of days that the likes of Rhythm and Vines are a week or two away from completely pulling the plug on these festivals because obviously they need to organise for artists to fly in, be sure they can get MIQ places. And then with a festival, what sort of restrictions are you going to be in by the beginning of uh, January? Are there going to be mask wearing restrictions in these open places? Uh, you might have seen pictures out of Britain over the last few weeks of these big summer festivals. Reading and the likes, tens of thousands of people gathered together, no masks. So this is a problem for the events sector, and they are actually calling for an insurance scheme, a government-backed insurance scheme. So I also asked the Prime Minister about this. This answer gives you a sense of how she'd, of course, like the festivals to reopen, and they'll work hard to do it. But she's left herself plenty of wiggle room if there is some extension of lockdowns or the base level lockdown rules or restrictions include restrictions or MIQ place restrictions that these festivals can't operate. It's not just the festivals, of course. There's an awful lot of conferences that are in deep trouble. They really can't operate under the 2.5 rules around 50 people being the maximum indoors. And uh, you've seen that from the likes of the Christchurch Convention Centres. Anyway, here's my question and answer with the Prime Minister on the summer festivals and whether or not there would be events insurance. Have a listen. Yeah. Um, what would you say to the event organisers like Rhythm and Vines and the like if they're planning for summer, and in particular 
is it really possible we could get to a vaccination rate which would allow that sort of event this summer? Some of my very close friends work in the creative and event sector, but that's not the only reason I am determined that we will find a way to make sure that regardless of the circumstances, globally and domestically, that we are able to have the events that make New Zealand summers. It's because actually it is part of who we are. It's not, it is about people's livelihoods, yes, absolutely. But it's also about the nature of our summers and what makes them fantastic for people and particularly our young people. And that's been one of the things that's been so successful about our approach is for the most part, yes, there's been disruption, but we've consistently been able to hold large scale events and I want to be able to continue that. So I can tell you, I'm very committed to finding a way that we will do that. These events organisers are asking for the government to provide an insurance scheme. Yeah. Um, what's your view on that? Yeah, so um, I think there's a way to work through this where we give that certainty and therefore where those issues become less material. So that's what we're focusing on. Because keeping in mind that it's not just music events, there are events up and down the country in, in cities and towns where councils, event organisers put a huge amount of work in and so it, it, it becomes endless. So that's why actually the best thing we can do is try and find a way that we give out the kind of guidance that can future-proof events. Ben. So there you are. She'd like to have rhythm and vines and is open to the idea of event insurance, but again, leaves plenty of room for optionality, I call it, so that if we don't have the event insurance and the events don't happen, then um, she can point to the other uh, caveats in her statements. That's from the press conference yesterday. I appreciated all the um, comments and the questions that were thrown up by our subscribers on yesterday's piece and please do uh, more of the same today. We'll be following up on these various calls to end elimination. Graham LaGrosse, the Mulligan Institute's professor who is in charge of New Zealand's own vaccine program, the vaccine research program to create a vaccine here. He is coming out and saying that Delta is so fast it's pretty hard to get ahead of it with a contact tracing and tracking program, which is true. That's what's happened in Australia. They've been overwhelmed by it. Sydney's given up trying to track and trace and the same in Victoria hundreds of cases now and he is saying we need to look beyond elimination to be fair the Prime Minister is saying that as well but is not giving any specific details about when or what the threshold would be the general assumption that is being allowed to settle in is that it's uh, sometime early next year and that until then until we get a high vaccination rate we will continue with elimination and hard lockdowns and very restricted MIQ. That would be the absolute limit of how long our economy and politically that could be handled. And of course, it's a complete race to get as high as possible with the vaccination rates. But this, the question I'm going to be focused on in the next couple of weeks is at what vaccination level can our health system cope with the inevitable outbreaks from border incursions if we were to open up and what sort of restrictions would you need on day-to-day -day business, family, personal life once you open up to ensure that our hospital system could cope? Because remember, even though it's 18 months since the first outbreaks, we haven't been able to bolster our health system much, in part because you just can't get the staff for the intensive care units. Now, there has been some jury rig systems created and the DHBs, of course, argue that they can handle surges. But as Graham LaGrosse pointed out today, 
there is every time you have a surge, every time you have a, a bunch of hospitalizations, people in ICUs, that means that elective surgeries get put off, cancer checks get put off. You, we just can't cope with those sorts of hospitalizations. So I'm going to keep a close eye on what's happening in, for example, Iceland and Denmark and start to dig around inside the DHBs and the ministry to find out just how much we can handle. Because at the moment, we've got 30-something cases in hospital, four in ICU, and our hospital system is still pretty much shut down for everything else beyond that, beyond emergencies. So electives are still being put back. There's apparently 30,000, there's a backlog of 30,000 surgeries at the moment, and something's got to give at some point. The question is when and how will the government and the Prime Minister in particular flip from hard elimination it's just hang on for a bit longer to, okay, we're now going to have to accept that there will be some outbreaks and hospitalizations and deaths. Okay, that's uh, that's on the COVID front. <laughs> there is other stuff happening, of course, all around the world. I like to keep an eye on what's happening in China with the various crackdowns on rich people and the tech companies in particular. Fresh one out overnight. The Beijing has announced that it will force the breakup of Alipay. Alipay is really important in China. It allows people to essentially use an app on their phone to pay for things. And it is the major transaction engine for parts of the economy, along with WePay. It also has uh, a couple of interesting financial services bolt-ons that offer personal loans and credit cards to everyone in China. It has now 10% of the total loans in China and is is a big deal. In particular, it has data on how people spend, whether they pay their debts, all of that sort of thing. And the government is forcing those two personal loan and credit card units of Alipay to essentially be carved off and to put all of their data on um, credit checks and credit references and credit history into a separate state-owned vehicle. Various people inside the Chinese government understand that once you have that data, that is a lot of power in China and credit checks and credit referencing and uh, social credit checks are a really important part of how the Chinese government maintains control. And in a way, you have to be a little bit sympathetic. The challenge we all face globally is the power of these big tech companies to do whatever they want without interference from governments, because in many cases they are bigger than governments and they have built data mines, which they won't disclose how they're using to make um, algorithmic decisions. And even if you're opposed to those algorithmic decisions, it's very difficult to get anything changed. good example of that is in the Wall Street Journal today. They have a scoop from a trove of documents that's come out through a whistleblower showing that Facebook operates a special list called XCheck, which has VIPs and various important people on a special list which is exempt from the normal controls that the algorithms apply on things like misinformation, violence, child protection, that sort of thing. This will boil up. The Wall Street Journal says they have two more articles coming in the next couple of days from these leaked documents and just reinforces again how Facebook has an approach which is don't ask for permission, ask for apology, say you're doing things but don't actually follow up and do things. And we've seen that here in our case where New Zealand challenged Facebook and Google to stop live streaming after the events in Christchurch. Google has done better than Facebook, it has to be said, in trying to control that stuff. But still, there's an enormous amount of misinformation around uh, from 
Google and Facebook, and in New Zealand, which is affecting our ability to uh, vaccinate everyone. And that's, in my view, something we should look at trying to restrict the freedom of these algorithms to pump stuff in all sorts of directions. Remembering, of course, that young Māori and Pacifica, of course, get most of their information from Facebook and from YouTube. And we're having particular problems at the moment ensuring a high vaccination rate for young Māori and Pacifica, who, of course, are young Pacifica were the most affected in the latest outbreak in, in Auckland. Keep an eye out for that one. What else is happening? Well, you might have heard the couple who vacated in a hurry from Auckland using exemptions for essential work to go from Auckland to Hamilton and then fly to their holiday home in Wanaka. They were dobbed in online and the police have forced them to go back to Auckland. It's interesting, last night the QC got them name suppression and they're going to apply to the High Court for an even longer name suppression. Meanwhile, um, two young women in a car who drove from Auckland through the border into Northland were chased for 100, for at various points, speeds got up to 140 kilometres, they drove through spikes, ran on rims for a bit, the police put them in prison and they're now on remand in custody. So tell us what you think about the elimination debate and what we need to do and, and the sort of questions that we need to be asking day in, day out. We'll see today at one o'clock whether there's an opportunity with the announcement of the latest figures to see what's uh, happening there. So, I hope you enjoyed the dawn chorus this morning. I'm Bernard Hickey on the Kaka.